Is it on now? Aha. Okay. I want to kneel and pray. Just bow your heads with me, please. Father in heaven, you are so wonderful. You are magnificent. We cannot praise you enough. Lord, I so much want you to take over this time. This is not a formal thing for me. It's just because I always do it doesn't mean I always do it just because I always do it. Lord, I cannot teach your word, but your Holy Spirit can. Send your spirit now, Lord. Speak to every heart. Speak to me. Let us see and know you. Let us know your love for us as we talk. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, that was a great lecture we just heard, and about right ways and wrong ways to study God's Word. And I have discovered that you can be studying God's Word in the right way, and it can still end up being the wrong way. And how did I figure that out? Because I did it for a long time. Um, folks, we learned that every book of the Bible has a theme. We learned that knowing that theme can really help us. You know what the theme of the whole Bible is? About God? Did you just say about God? Yes, it is. That's absolutely true. God is communicating himself to us. But see, he doesn't just want us to know about him. He wants us to know him as a person. I'm going to tell you something tragic, and I learned this by tragic experience. You can know everything. I don't suppose anybody knows everything. But you can know almost everything about God without really knowing God. Is that true? That is true. You can know, you can know so much about... I know enough about the Bible now. I think I could preach back-to-back -back sermons several times a day for the rest of my life and never run out of things that I know about the Bible. Now, am I the greatest theologian in the world? No, there's probably people who could preach for 200 years and then not exhaust all they know. But I'm just saying, I know so much from many years of Bible study, which I've always found very, very satisfying. But Jesus, when he described his mission, notice how personal his mission is. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Do you notice that all those things that Jesus came to do are about an effect that his life is going to have on my life? Do you see that? It's about healing. It's about setting people free. It's about giving people sight. Do you understand that? Jesus wants to have an effect upon us. He wants his word to have an effect upon us. Now, I just got to share my experience. You know, as you read the New Testament, you discover that Paul started every evangelistic series by giving his testimony. So I'm going to share part of my testimony here. And for some of you, this will hardly make any sense because you're so young. But I'm a son of the church. My father was a pastor. I was educated in the Adventist system, grades 1 through MDiv. MDiv. Can you imagine that? Master of Divinity. Who on earth is a Master of Divinity anyway? I declared my intention to be a pastor at age six, publicly in front of a camp meeting crowd. I had a dream of the return of Jesus in my sixth year also, which I still fondly remember. Oh, that was a beautiful dream. All the angels and the glorious colors and all that. I was baptized at age 10, and I have never regretted it. Any of you baptized at age 10 or somewhere around that age? Yeah, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. 
I excelled in Pathfinders. Anybody ever remember what Pathfinders was? Fewer and fewer people know anything about Pathfinders anymore, but I was a devoted Pathfinder. I always earned my ingathering goal, and I know you don't know anything about ingathering. <laughs> See, I, only if you're like me, you know, you just, your life experience began shortly after the Jurassic period. But you remember these things. I experienced, now, now get this, I experienced no teenage rebellion. See, I grew up in such a, such a religious church family, no teenage rebellion. I took the temperance pledge, they don't even do that anymore. But I went to Adventist school, and the, 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 the temperance guy came around from the conference office, and, and, and he taught us to, be, to, to not use drugs and smoke and alcohol and all that. And then he offered, if we wanted to, we could take the temperance pledge. And I took it, and I signed my card, and you know what? I never, I never violated that temperance pledge. I did well in school, and I made my parents proud. Wow, aren't I something? See, I'm sharing this for a reason. It's not just to show, show you what a great guy I am. In fact, quite the contrary. All the doctrines made sense to me from a child. I loved their elegance and their logic. I eagerly entered the Adventist ministry. And in the ministry, I found that I was very happy when I was preaching. Anybody else here like to preach? Isn't preaching fun? You just feel so energized. Holy Spirit comes. It's so wonderful. I found I was happy when I was preaching. I found I was happy when I was teaching, when I was visiting people, when I was counseling with people, when I was training people, discipling, evangelizing. I was even happy when I was doing administration, somewhat. But I found that I was not happy when I was not working. Now, some Christians, some Seventh-day Adventist Christians, you see, like the message really like the message. I find this especially true for young people. So I am talking to young, you young people. I find that those of, those of you who are really giving yourself to God at, at, at a young age are quite often really enthusiastic about the Adventist message, as I was. And you want to know how to explain it to others. And you want to be an expert at teaching the Bible. Praise God. I'm so glad you feel that way. And you want to be able to parse it all out and make sense of it, and, and it's so clear that it's undeniable, and, it's, and, and that's the way I felt. And so I studied, and it made me very happy to do that, but I was not particularly happy when I was not working. Hmm. I have met many Adventist young people who are in that same position. In fact, they're not happy unless they are doing corporate work or unless they're out giving Bible studies or unless they're doing mission service or they're going overseas and, and preaching. Or they've, now, is that, is, is that okay? It does make us very happy to work for the Lord, doesn't it? It makes us very, very happy. But, what, but we can't be working for the Lord 24-7. I mean, yes, you can be God's representative 24-7, but you know, you know what I'm saying. There, there's those in-between times when it's just you with your own head or it's just you with your friends or with your family and it's a social time or something else, and it's not, you know, direct ministry. Are you happy then? You, know, you can tell if somebody's happy, because if they're happy, they smile. Isn't that simple? Another thing you can tell is happy people don't grouch. Well, they really don't. I have met so many grouchy Adventists. How many of you have met grouchy Adventists? All right, now let's see the honesty here. How many of you have been a grouchy Adventist sometimes? Uh-huh. You find it easy to complain about things? 
especially things in the church and things your brethren are doing and not doing, etc., etc. Oh boy, sure sign of not being a really happy Christian. So in order to stay happy, I became a workaholic. We have many members in our churches like that. We thank God for them. They work themselves to the bone. They make the church work, see? But if you really look at those people, some of them are, are working so hard and so much because they don't find happiness in any other part of their lives. That's the only time they're really happy is when they're doing something in church or for the church. So I, I became a workaholic and, and, and a relatively productive pastor as a result because if you work hard and, and, and you share the truth and you, you know, teach and so forth, you're, you're going to have some productivity, of course. Holy Spirit blesses our efforts, especially our sincere efforts. How many of you think that I was sincere? You'd be right. I was sincere. Absolutely. I was not putting on anything. I was not faking it. I love this Adventist message. But I felt like two people. One was the upbeat professional person who really loved to work, and then there was this melancholy individual behind the scenes. Now, I realize not every one of you is going to be able to identify with this. Some of you are going to say, I, don't, I, just, I never felt like that. You see, some of you were actually born with a positive attitude. Some of you were born kind of like that, you know, we call them sanguines. Have you heard of that? And you were born just with an upbeat, bubbly attitude. Let me see if there's any of you here that identify yourselves that way. It's born kind of an upbeat. It's easier for you to see the glass half full than half empty and all that stuff. All right. Well, I wasn't. I was born with the other kind. You know, I, could, I'll, I tell you what, and not only that, not only was I born with a negative tendency, but then it was instilled in me more and more by the way I was brought up because I, I grew up in a very grouchy, complainy home where we, we, we chewed each other up, you know. It was sad. Anyway, so I felt like two people. There was this upbeat person. I even had people comment to me on that. Pastor Lehman, you have two personalities. When you're, just, when you're really into God's work and you're doing God's work, you're so fun to be around and you've got this great dynamic and you're just really going. But then when we see you in private, you know, when you've got your baseball cap on and you're just doing your own thing, you seem just not so, not so happy. You know? What's up with you? I, I don't know. I guess it just really turns me on to do God's work and then, you know, you see my normal personality the other times. Yeah, I guess. I, guess. You know, I didn't know there was anything wrong with that except I didn't really like it. My private unhappiness expressed itself in moodiness. These are things I know most of you don't know anything about. Anxiety, fearfulness about all kinds of things, the future, what people thought about me, uh, how money, health, you name it. Sensitivity, and even depression. Went through a sad period in my life where I experienced a lot of depression. Didn't even know what it was, didn't know what the word meant. Then I found myself wishing I could die. I hope none of you ever experienced that, but if you do, let me tell you, there's a solution to that. Amen. There is. I remember one time I was doing a funeral, and I was standing right up here on the platform, and they had the body there at the funeral, you know, and the body was down just in front of me. And I'm going along with the service, and I always, you know, I've always felt good about, about funerals, because for a Christian, it's, it's a time of, you know, maybe not exactly rejoicing, but of, of hope and encouragement. But I found myself looking down at the body of the person that was in front of me, and saying, you are so lucky. I wish I could trade places with you. <laughs> now, I'm saying that. I know it's shocking to many of you. Think, who could ever feel that way? But I know there are some among you who actually can identify with that and have actually felt that way sometime. And... Uh, because as Christians, we know that, hey, if, once we die, it's like instantaneous. The voice of Jesus is calling us home, right? And so it doesn't seem such a terrible thing to be dead to us. 
And uh, so I, I, I even had depression. My good background, you know, my good Christian upbringing kept me from the grosser sins, but my unhappiness made me vulnerable to some unwholesome pursuits. So I felt like a poor and a powerless Christian. Anybody ever feel that way? Don't raise your hands. I felt like, you know, I, I suspect that you are here because you're the cream of the crop. You're here because you're so sincere, you're so earnest. You're here because you're willing to give time and money to find out how to be a better Seventh-day Adventist Christian. You want to be dynamic for God, right? Now, that is a wonderful thing, but that also proves to me that many of you are feeling like you're not there yet. And it's possible that some of you are even rather depressed about that. And you're, you're just hoping that someone can show you the secret to how to move from where you are to where you want to be. Well, folks, by God's grace, and please pray for me, I intend to show you that secret right now, that you must pray for me, that, that it'll come across correctly and that you can get it because you, you want this, you need this. Looking around, I could see that most Adventists and most of my peers were in the same condition. Generally, we call this the Laodicean condition. Have you heard about that condition? The only thing different from me and the average Laodicean was that somewhere about halfway through this experience, though I was wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, at least I knew it. See, so I could always say, well, I'm not Laodicean because he says in the Laodiceans, you are all these things and you don't know it, right? At least I knew it, so <clears throat> I'm a little bit above the Laodiceans. No, but the tragic, the tragic thing is, the tragic thing is, there is not much joy in Seventh-day Adventist churches. And I'm not saying we need to jump up and down, you know, raise our hands and fall on the floor and all that to, to, to experience joy. No, no, no. no. Joy is something very much internal inside of you. If it's there, it's there. You don't have to do anything to make it happen. I didn't have much joy. I read that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. And I find out that joy is so seldom experienced that most Christians don't even use the word. In fact, if you ask a Christian what joy is, most of them are not even sure. They say, well, I think maybe God doesn't really mean joy. Maybe he means peace. You know, I have a relative amount of peace because I know Jesus Christ is my Savior and I've given my life today, so I'm pretty sure that I'm on my way to heaven. So I have peace. You know what? They're lying about that. Most of them don't even have peace. You can see the anxiety and the fear and the concern on their faces. How many Seventh-day Adventist Christians really wear a smile most of the time? No! Most of them wear an expression of concern, if not of downright discouragement. You ask them how they're doing, fine. Fine? That's something that, that happens to you when you break the law, you know, you get a fine. Fine is nothing. It's just something to say. You know, I used to say when people ask me, how are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed. I'm really blessed. That's such a pious-sounding thing, isn't it? Come on, everybody's blessed. I mean, the wicked are blessed. The rain falls and the sunshine comes, right? Everybody's blessed. What's blessed? More and more often now, when people ask me, how are you doing? I say something which always causes them to go, huh? I say, Jesus loves me so much. And you know, when you're abiding in that truth, don't let anybody make fun of that. I used to make fun of that. I'll talk to you talk more about that later. I could see that most Adventists and most of my peers were in the same condition. My mind was satisfied. Now, get this, my mind was satisfied. That gave me some hope, by the way. Remember what Hebrews 8, verse 10 says? He's going to write his law in our mind and in our 
heart. My mind was satisfied, so I knew I had made some progress, right? At least my mind was experiencing the sanctification of Jesus Christ because I was intellectually absolutely satisfied with Seventh-day Adventism. You couldn't bring any question in relative to, uh, to, uh, to uh, evolutionism, relative to one of our doctrines, relative to the inspiration of Ellen White, relative to... You, nothing could shake me. I got to the point, and praise God, I'm still at that point where I am intellectually secure in this faith. Are you? That's part of the reason you're here. You want to be. Maybe some of you aren't there yet. But I got to that point. You can get to that point. But folks, that's not all there is. He's going to write his law in our hearts too, huh? Is that what he says? So um, one day I finally realized, this was several years ago, I woke up and realized that I had an intellectual religion, that it wasn't really full of love and joy. Okay? And uh, I felt like I was just stuck, you know. Have you ever been stuck in your spiritual experience? I felt like when I really looked back, I felt like I'd been stuck probably for about 10 years, about a decade. I'd been stuck and I wasn't making progress. I was still making progress in knowledge. Isn't it great how there's just no end of things to learn from God's Word? And I was still making progress in knowledge, and my sermons became clearer and clearer and more and more in depth, but I, I found that I was not making progress in the, in the experience. So I finally admitted that to my church members, and I said, you know, would you pray for me? I think I'm stuck. By the way, is it ever a good idea to be honest about your spiritual experience? Not in all the details, you know, that's... That's only Catholic priests can handle that. <laughs> but it is right to be honest with our brothers and sisters about our experience, even if we're pastors. I, I found that the, my church didn't hold that vulnerability against me. They actually were uh, happy to pray for me. And so they prayed, dear God, get Pastor Lehman past his block, whatever it is, that he can go forward in his experience and find what he's wanting. I even had, I, we had an anointing service in the church, and I anointed a lot of people, and I saw a lot of miracles, but I also wanted to be anointed, so I had my head elder anoint me. It was a great thing. And, and, and right after that happened, a great insight came into my mind. Simply put, it was this. You're not in love with Jesus. You love everything about Jesus. You can preach a great sermon on the love of Jesus because you can describe the love of Jesus in great detail and bring people to tears in your congregation. But you yourself are not in love with Jesus. That was a, a you know, it's hard to hear something like that and, and, you, and you want to deny it. You say, wait a minute, I, I, I know Jesus loves me and I love him. I, why would I be a minister? Why would I? It's like when the husband says, you know, the wife says to the husband, I don't feel like you really love me. And he says, well, I do everything for you. I gave you my life. I, I, I bring the paycheck home. You know, uh, I, I take care. I, I take the garbage out. You know, I've given my whole life to you. How can you say you don't really love me? Or I don't really love you. But that was what Jesus was saying to me. And it was just hard to hear because, you know, I have given you everything. Isn't that love? And I heard the Lord saying, no, you haven't quite given me everything yet. But see, <laughs> that's not where it starts. We love him because what? Ah, that was the next great revelation that came to me after I was anointed. You see, I don't have any love. How many of us have any love? No, you don't have any love. Love comes from where? God. 
So you can only give back as much love as you uh, experience. You can't give back the love that you just know about. That's intellectual. That doesn't translate into actual love. That's just the knowledge of love. You can only give back as much love as you experience. And I heard God saying to me what so many wives have said to their husbands. You are not making yourself emotionally available to me. You're making yourself intellectually available, but you're not making yourself emotionally available. Is there an emotional component to real religion? Why do you think there's so much talk in the Bible about your heart? You know that sermon we heard this morning, if you seek Him with all your heart, I finally realized what that meant. That means making myself emotionally available to Him. That means opening my heart and saying, okay, I can't love you until I am experiencing your love. I know you love me. I don't question that. But that's an intellectual observation. Now I want to experience your love. It's not that you're holding out on me, I'm sure. It's just that I have such a hard heart, I have not let you love me. Is that true? You know that's true. That's the way Christians are. I have not let you love me. And consequently, since I haven't let you love me, I haven't experienced your love, I'm not full of that love experience. And that's why I don't have joy, of course. And that's why I can't give you back much. We can only give back what we get. Is that true? Is that true biblically? You know it is. Now you're going to say, Pastor, what does all this have to do with studying the Bible? We're here to learn how to study the Bible. Oh, it has so much to do with studying the Bible, folks. There are two ways to study the Bible. Both of them are correct. Unfortunately, I was stuck on just one of them. I was studying for knowledge, you see, for understanding and for application of that knowledge, but I wasn't studying for experience. You see, the Bible is, is the Word of God. Who else is the Word of God? Jesus is the Word of God. So one of the ways in which we study the Bible must be a way in which in God's Word we actually meet Jesus. See, if we don't do that, then we're only getting the brain part. We're not getting the heart part. So I saw that my experience was not unique. I saw much grouchiness, sensitivity, and worldly inclinations had gripped the church, and I realized that people who are in love with Jesus have drunk of the water that he provides, and they're not thirsty anymore, and they are satisfied with his love. And I realized that that did not describe very many people that I knew. Do you hear me? Yes, you know it's true. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. This is the most astonishing scripture. How much has he loved us? Folks, contemplate this for a minute. He loves us as much as his father loves him. How long has they, have they had to develop that love relationship? How much love do you think the father has for the son? I found myself reading that verse and actually having a very hard time believing it. I believed it intellectually, but in my heart I could not say that I actually thought, knew it. Because in my heart, I had this self-talk that I'd grown up with since I was a little child. You're dumb, you're ugly, you're foolish, you're mistaken, you're unwise, you're, you know, you're, 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 just, you're really a bad person. And Jesus says in John chapter 8, I don't judge anybody, I don't condemn anybody. Because Jesus said, I'm here to heal you with my love. 
And so I was not really letting the love break through. I knew this was true, because I'd studied this verse many times over the years. I knew it intellectually was true, but I was not... I mean, how much of the love of the Father was Jesus experiencing as he walked on, this, on, the, on, the, on the planet here? He, he, that love of the Father just carried him right along, didn't it? He was just riding the wave of that love all the time. It was that love that gave him his security. It was that love that gave him his power. It was that love that gave him his certainty that even if everybody else rejected him, he could go on. It was that love that made him be born in Bethlehem. It was the love that carried him through his whole earthly ministry. It was the love of the Father that finally gave him the strength to even go to the cross. And then it was the love of the Father that he gave up and lost for a little bit on the cross so that I could have it so that all that love from the Father could be mine. How much does Jesus love me? As much as his Father loves him. And then Jesus says this amazing thing, continue in my love. This word continue in the Greek means to stay put. Live there. Abide, some, some translations say. Stay in my love. Stay in the experience of my love all the time. I want to ask you something. Is love fun? Is love secure? Is love healing? Is it possible to be experiencing love and be in a bad mood? No, you can know about love, but it's not possible to be experiencing love and internalizing it and accepting it and be in a bad mood. You see, it takes away all the things that you were fear. Perfect love casts out what? Fear. How much fear? All of it. All of it. See, he says, continue in my love. I didn't even realize that was possible. It is possible to live continuously in the love of God. What would that really mean? A continual intimate filling with the love of God. Sure glad you guys are on the ball. All right, got to hurry on. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he what? Loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Find the love of God in his word. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. Oh, I love that. It seems almost too good to believe that the father can and does love any member of the human family as he loves his son, but we have the assurance that he does. Wow. He betrayed his son for us. We're as important to him as Jesus is. He would lavish his affection on us as freely as he does on Jesus Christ. Is that what that means? Can you fathom that? Are you experiencing that? Do you feel that love? Oh, when something bad happens to you, do you say, I knew God was kind of mad at me. You can tell it by our prayers. I hear all these prayers. Oh, Lord, please, please, please. Folks, he can't wait to bless you. He's just waiting for you to open yourself up to his blessing. He can't wait. You don't have to beg him to bless you. If somebody loves you, do they want to withhold their blessings from you? Huh? No, no. We've got to experience the love of God in his word. We've got to, folks. Don't take this lightly. I know there are preachers who preach love, 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 and they don't preach obedience. I'm against that. You see, when the love of God takes over your life, you can't help but obey God. Into whatever depths of degradation and misery you have sunken, God recognizes you as his own. 
precious to his heart of love. You cannot be safe or happy without him, but get this. He can't be satisfied, what? Without you. Folks, if we actually experience that reality, both, in the, in, both intellectually and emotionally, I know some people say love is not emotional. Love is a principle. You know what? Love is a principle. But it has a wonderful emotional component that makes people very happy. And happy Christians are good witnesses, and happy Christians are magnetic. Happy Christians give a, 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 an illustration of why it's a nice thing to be a Christian. Of course there's an emotional component to love. Are you kidding? Jesus is very emotional about us. Very emotional. In fact, as I've been reading the scriptures now looking for God's love, I am finding that the Bible describes God's emotions more often than it describes his intelligence. God is angry. God is rejoicing. God is, 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 is full of t- compassion and tenderness. Whatever. It's talking about God's emotions all the time. God is deeply emotional, and he's even motivated by his emotions. And you might think, well, that sounds scary. No, not at all, because his emotions are entirely holy. I'm looking forward to living in all eternity motivated by holy emotions. God knows that we'll never be truly obedient just by our heads, doesn't he? He knows we all, he also has to have what? Our hearts. Because if he doesn't have our emotions, our obedience is just external, it's just outward, it's just technical. And the Pharisees already had that, and he says it has to exceed that. Here's another one. We honor God and our Lord Jesus Christ when we rest in his what? Love. Now, I put a whole bunch of quotations in here. I would love nothing more than to have time to go through all of them with you, but I don't, so I just put them in here uh, from Ellen White. And also there's a page in here called In Him, which I take very literally. Everything that we need is where? In Jesus. And I believe that Jesus is looking for an intimate love connection with all of us. All the time. 24-7. Here's what he says to Jeremiah, to the Jews, to Jeremiah. You are my dearest child, the one I love best. Whenever I mention your name, I think of you with love. My heart goes out to you. That's what I believe about Jesus today. That's the way he feels about me. Are you experiencing God's love? Believing in God's love is not the same as experiencing it. Jesus loves everyone. Jesus especially loves the church. Jesus loves you as part of the church. But does he love you personally? Yes, he does. We ourselves know, the Bible says, and believe the love which God has for us. God is love. And those who live in union with, or those who live Let me get that back back to that. God is love, and those who live in love live in union with God. I must ask you, are you living in love? Does your Bible study lead you to enter into God's love? Well, mine didn't. I found that I have had, I had been, I had learned back when I was about 15 years old that I needed to have daily devotional, and I spent time in God's Word every day and time in prayer every day, and I developed that habit, and of course there were times when I missed it, and I saw that that was not a good thing for my experience, but I, I pretty much faithfully followed that all my life, and still I found that I was not the happy Christian that I should be, which proves to me that there's a right and a wrong way to have a devotional life. Do you understand that? Study, 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 Yes. Study for truth. Study for facts. Yes, you need them. That's the foundation of your faith. But is that enough? No. 
also look for the love of God. Well, I decided to, to, to change my devotional life, and I, I was desperate after, they, after I had that anointing that God revealed to me that I didn't really experience His love much. And I said, okay, I'm going to spend time just looking for your love. I want to experience your love. I want you to break through my hard heart. I want you to show me so that I can actually experience your love and not just know about it intellectually. I want to have the joy that comes from being loved. And so I remember that first morning, I said, okay, I'm going, to give, I'm going to give you this hour. I'm going to give this hour every day, and I'm going to search for your love until I find it. And so I opened my heart. I opened my mind. I opened my eyes. I read. I was reading out Desire of Ages at that time, and I was looking for his love for me. I kept saying, God, I've been for years realizing I needed to love you more. Now I realize the only way I can love you more is if I'm experiencing more of your love so I can give it back to you. Does that make sense? Is that a sensible prayer? Does your study of God's word validate that? I realize I've got to have more of your love in my heart in order to give you back more. I see that now. My, my obedience will be perfect if I love you, won't it? If you love him, what? Keep his commandments. So I, I knew, I, I understood that. That made perfect sense. So I've got to experience more of you. So here I am, the first hour, the first day, the first thing in the morning, first hour, it didn't come. It was just the same. Nothing happened. Second day, I, I searched again, desperately, earnestly, prayed, looked for his love, asked him to let me actually understand, comprehend. No, 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 that's also intellectual. Let me also feel it too. Nothing. Third day, nothing. Fourth day, nothing. Whole first week, nothing. Second week, first day, nothing. Second day, nothing. Third. It wasn't until the 13th day. And I tell you this because it could happen to you, and I don't want you to get discouraged that I opened my heart to God and he finally got through my stony heart and broke in with his love. Since that day, I have never been the same. I call it my third conversion. Because when you really are certain experientially that you are his treasure, not just head knowledge. I could say that for years. I, I know he treasures me. No, no. Experientially, when you're healed by his love, when you're experiencing the infilling of his presence and the joy of his... Folks, you know this. Many of you are ahead of me on this. Then everything looks different. I had people right away telling me, Pastor Lehman, something's happened to you. Yeah, I'm so glad you can tell. Guess what? I love you. I say that to people all the time. I love you. They're like, mm. strange about him. I can't help it. I do. You know, because when you love God, you love everybody, right? You love everybody he loves. Who does he love? Yeah. It's so fantastic. Anyway, I've got to carry on here. God is love. What is God? If he can only characterize himself by one word, what does he characterize himself by? Love. Yes, it's a principle. Yes, it causes him to give everything. Yes, it's, it's altruistic and self-sacrificing and all those things. Yes. But folks, it's also a warm fuzzy. And don't be ashamed of that because you need it. He says, unless you become as little children, what do little children need? They need affection. Children cannot make it without affection. You know that. That's been proven, don't you? They need warm fuzzy. We need warm fuzzies every single day. If I don't have a warm fuzzy from Jesus every single day, I'm impoverished that day. I'm dry. I'm cool. I'm intellectual. Seek it. Don't be ashamed to seek that. Give yourself two objectives in study. Make sure you don't neglect to experience his love. 
And the other objective, of course, is to learn more truth. Devotion and hard work are not enough. They will not qualify us for the kingdom of God and will not make us happy. I did never apply this verse. I applied this verse to everybody but myself for years. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? Haven't we cast out devils in your name? Haven't we done many wonderful works in your name? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. That's what happens to the unwise virgins, isn't it? They are preparing to meet Jesus. They have their lamps. They believe fully in the message. They have an intellectual experience, not a heart experience. He comes, they come to the door finally after they've got their act together, and he says, not you're late. You could have said that, huh? You're late. No, he says, I don't know you. We haven't gotten close to each other. You're not experiencing me. Does that make sense to you? I once thought those love preachers, all those people would be love, 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 love. I thought their theology, theology was as fuzzy as their emotions. Folks, maybe it was. I don't know. If you put love on one hand and obedience on the other hand, you miss the whole point. See, because when I love Jesus fully, I trust him so much that anything he wants me to do is just part of his love. Did you see that? It makes obedience, folks. I'm going to say something It may sound startling. When you're in love with Jesus, obedience becomes automatic. You don't even have to argue about it. Now, do you suddenly go from not loving Jesus very much to loving him as much as you should all at once? No, 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 no. It's a growing experience. But as you're into it, it feels good. It feels good. I know that I am loved individually, not just corporately. He doesn't just love the church. He loves me. I know that in accepting love, I am healed, and I'm made joyful, and I'm given power to be effective for Jesus. An intimate connection with Jesus is expressed in many biblical metaphors. Think of some of them. Eat my flesh, right? Drink my blood. That's intimate, isn't it? I'm taking him into myself. Do you get it? This is an intimate experience. We're talking about connection. He becomes part of me. I become part of him. That's what he's talking about. Drink the water. I am the light that comes into your eyes. My word must enter into you. On and on and on. He even uses the metaphor of marriage itself and says he's the husband and we're the bride. I may have the gift of inspired preaching. Now this verse became very personal to me. I may have all knowledge. I may understand all the secrets of God's word. I may have all the faith needed to move mountains. But if I have not love, I'm what? Now that's not saying, see, I misunderstood that for so long. I thought that meant if I don't love people. Of course, I always knew my love for people was inadequate. Uh, well, I'm, boy, how can I, you know, I have all this knowledge, but it hasn't made me want to really love people. See, it's not, if you have his love, you always have it. You've had it from before you were born. But that doesn't mean that you've appropriated it, does it? If you appropriate his love, then you love people. Oh, you really can't see that very much, can you? Well, they need all these lights for the cameras, but anyway, it's some help, I hope. I may give away everything I have and even give up my body to be burned. I mean, I can be a great steward. Stewardship can be a strength of my character. I can even be willing to be a martyr. But if I have not love, this does me what? No good. We have had an intellectual religion. You know how to become a Seventh-day Adventist? Give an intellectual assent to the 28. It used to be 27, but now it's 28. A couple more years, it's going to be 29. <laughs> We've had an intellectual religion. Come on, you know I'm telling the truth. I've prepared ever so many people. We call it clearing them for baptism. You believe this? Yes, I believe this. You agree with that? Yes, I agree with that. You understand that? Yes, I understand that. You're ready to be an Adventist. 
We have believed in the love of God, but how many are continually experiencing it? How many are doing what Jesus commanded us to do in John 15? How many are living in his love? Whoa. You know what I honestly believe now? I believe that the disciples learned in the early reign to live in the love of God. I really do. And I believe that the early rain prepares us for the latter rain. And I believe that Seventh-day Adventists are going to have to get that oil of the Holy Spirit, which teaches them to live in God's love before they can have the, the rest of the oil, which empowers them to finish the work. Do you, do you think I'm anywhere close to correct on that? I've got so many more scriptures to prove that, but I'm running out of time so fast. Whew. Meanwhile, these three remain. Here's what the apostle says. There's three things that are important, that are absolutely urgent, that remain. That means these are the things that, these are the pillars, you know. We have 28 pillars, but Paul has three. Faith, hope, and love. Now, folks, I'm going to use the, the, I'm going to interpret faith here. This is going to be my concluding idea here. I'm going to use faith as Paul uses it repeatedly, not nearly every time. But one of his meanings of faith is the doctrines. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. In other words, united understanding of the truth, right? And of the knowledge of the Son of God. Here's another way. He, he says it again in that way. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the faith. In other words, he preaches this great truth which once he destroyed. And then, watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. So when he, when he, often when he puts the word the in front of faith, he's using it in that way. As the body of truth. And stick with it. And know it. And understand it. And never leave it. Amen? Faith abides. What abides? Faith abides, yes, but also hope abides. And what is hope? Well, you know, again, it has a broad application, but just narrowing it down a little bit. There is one body, one spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling. Oh, that great hope. And what is it that gives us that great hope? Looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hope abides, folks. And I found that in Seventh-day Adventism, what gives us hope more than anything else is the study of the prophecies. Do you love prophetic studies? That's one of the things that characterizes us as Seventh-day Adventists, isn't it? And I love prophetic studies, and I have been a prophetic student and a prophetic preacher and teacher all my life. In fact, tomorrow morning, I have a class on a couple chapters in Revelation because I'm so excited about a truth there. I love prophecy. So he says, now abides faith. This is all this great body of truth that we understand, that we base our whole uh, everything on in Christ and confidence in Christ. And then there's hope, which is this great thing that we get from our prophecies. Seventh-day Adventists, we have the faith. We have the hope. But then he says, now abides also love. And he says of those three, which one's the most important? Even though, he says, if I have prophecy and I understand all the mysteries and all knowledge and I have not love, I'm what? Nothing. Meanwhile, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. I ask you then to understand that every morning when you have your devotion time, Jesus is waiting to embrace you. Not just teach you something. Oh, yes, he will teach you something. Always seek knowledge. There's nothing wrong with that. But he's also waiting to embrace you. I have come to where I consciously seek that. Lord, here I am. Remember what Jesus said was the solution for Laodiceanism? He tells them all this big problem and you're so lukewarm. He tells you Laodiceans, you're all lost. It's so tragic because most Seventh-day Adventists right now are in a lost condition. He says, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. That's lost, isn't it? Am I telling the truth? You know that's true. All right, 
my spiritual mind. But, but he tells us what the whole solution to that is. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. What door? The door of our hearts. The door, the door of our emotional response to him. I know it's the door of our heart. Ellen White repeatedly says he's talking about the door of our heart there. In, in the Bible, the word heart is always used, nearly always used, for, to, to include our emotional self. It's not only that, it's got some intellectual and other things mixed in at times, but it's very much an, uh, an emotional aspect as well. And, and so he says, I'm standing and I'm knocking at the door of your heart. That's what he says to us, let us see it. And he says, if anyone hears my voice, do you hear his voice? He says, and opens the door. That's his solution. Just open the door. I will What? Come in. Folks, in him is the answer to everything. I in him, he in me. Is that true? Don't let your devotional life consist of anything less than opening that door to Jesus personally. I wake up first thing in the morning and say, Jesus, another day is starting, and I am desperate for your love. Oh, but I just loved you yesterday. It doesn't make any difference. Yesterday's love is not good enough for today. I'm desperate for another dose of your love. I'm hungry for you. I'm thirsty for you. Come to me, Jesus, or I can't even get out of bed. He does come. Now I get out of bed and I go to my secret quiet place with him and I fall on my knees and I beg him, not because he doesn't want to love me, because I need to open my heart, right? Love me, Lord. Wrap me in your arms. Remind me how important I am, how precious I am to you. Heal me. Cleanse me. Live in me. Enter me. I'm opening the door as wide as I know how. Help me. Teach me how to open it even wider, Lord. If you would take full entrance into me, full possession of me, I would be just like you. Come in. I read the word. Show me, Lord, in your word how much you love me. Show me. Of course, after I'm feeling very happy, very warm, very secure in his love, then, now, Lord, Teach me how to respond to that doctrinal question I'm going to have in the class later on today. Do you see the point? I hope you see that point. I hope that makes sense to you. I guarantee you, until you understand this, you'll never be a really happy Christian. Father in heaven, we love you. We have loved you for a long time. But we also see that our love is quite inadequate, and the evidence of that is that we worry some, and we fear some, and we complain some, and we also disobey some, Lord. And we realize that if we loved you perfectly, we wouldn't have any of those symptoms. And so now we see that you must heal us with your love. Father, teach us to open our hearts to you. Teach us to do that not only once a day, but all day long praising you and thanking you and rejoicing in you. Father, you're going to make your people holy. We know you are. And it'll be by the sanctifying influence of your love in our lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.